Well, may um, God's, our Heavenly Father's grace and peace be yours to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ today. And uh, it is good to be in the Lord's house together, as been mentioned. And it's starting to look a little more like Christmas. Uh, so that's good too, right? And uh, get us in the a reminder of that great gift God has given to us in Christ. Well, um, I do want to mention before we look at the uh, word together, uh, next week Perry Jones will be with us from Capital City Rescue Mission. He'll be preaching for us. Uh, and um, if if he, if he I know him, it'll be on Jesus on a rescue mission uh, because that, uh, that is his passion and his heart. And we're so thankful for him and the ministry down there, Capital City Albany, where our guys went yesterday, so uh, be looking forward to that as our family travels for the next week and about a week and a half, so you can pray for us as well. Uh, keep in mind the Christmas dinner also coming up, and invite people to that. To invite your neighbors and, and, and people around you to come to that on the 16th at 6 o'clock. If you need to know where it's at, um, you're in trouble. I'm just kidding. Uh, you go down the road, first left, and it's right on the left. So first left that way on the left. But if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter number 4. <clears throat> Gospel of John, chapter number 4. We began uh, John 4 last week, and we'll look at it again this week. Um, there are... Uh, ways to learn truth. Sometimes we learn them by statement of facts. We need that. We need uh, things explained for us and laid out in, in certain ways to where we can logically see it and understand it and take it in. And there's other other times we need a, a picture of it, kind of a case study, uh, an example uh, of something at work and how it works. And I think that's what you have in the narrative here and many of the narratives. The encounter with Jesus is a is an example, is a picture, not taking away from the historical aspects of the narrative, but it is a it's an example of Christ at work and the people and people's lives and it helps us connect dots sometimes in a different way than just statements of facts, and that's what you have here. And I'm gonna give reading in verse number fifteen. <clears throat> Let me go back to verse number uh, 3 of chapter 4. And you can follow along with me as I read. He, speaking of Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey and was, or as he was... Wearied from, as he was from his journey and was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back as they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have no food to eat that you do not, or I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are wide for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his words. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. May God bless the reading of his infallible, inerrant word. Uh, Pray with me just for a moment. Father, we thank you for this time this morning that we can gather together. Thank you for this uh, narrative that you give us in the life of Christ and the work that you've done. Not only this woman, we do not know her name, but also in the town in which she lived and the reminder that through this, the countless times you have worked in the world uh, through this Uh, through this word we pray that you'd work in our hearts this morning in jesus name amen and amen 
Well, last week we began this narrative looking at the first part of this and uh, rather preparing ourselves to see Jesus as a man who ministers with intention. And I want to take a broader look at the whole narrative this morning as we see the gospel at work in this woman's life, but not just this woman's life, but the outcome of that working in Samaria in this town and all the people that come to Jesus and believe because of this woman's testimony. And would that not be the desire uh, for this church? And even my desire for this study in John as we are continually uh, being confronted with the call to believe that God would through transform lives impact not only uh, one person's life but our town and our community. Uh, that God would work not simply in us but that work would spill out to the places you and I go throughout this uh, as God leads us along throughout this holiday season throughout this year. Now Paul reminds us on the out, uh, in Rome at the beginning of that letter that he is not ashamed of the gospel. You know that verse don't you? The reason he's not ashamed of it, because it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation to, uh, to those who believe, to the Jew and the Gentile. Uh, it is God's great, powerful work that he has given to us uh, to transform our lives and to, to deliver us, to bring salvation to us. And one of the things unique and I think... Um, beautiful to see throughout the gospel narratives but not just the narratives but also in the church that paul wrote in corinth that the gospel is not a reward for those people who are getting it right it's not an offer to the people who are doing well or to those whom we might consider to be righteous in fact jesus kind of squashes that in his sermon on the mount when he said or mount when he says unless your righteousness exceeds gets above the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter into the kingdom of God, uh, setting the bar much higher than the people could ever anticipate. And so here we see heaven is not the reward of those who are doing well or a medal of achievement for the good. It isn't a place for boring people or people who have never been broken or hurt or uh, devastated by the effects of sin, even their own sin and the sin of others. The gospel message comes to us as, a, as God's power, as his gift, but it comes to all of us and it comes to the most unusual people that we can imagine. In fact, it's what you find in Corinth as he's addressing them about how he came to them preaching nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That way the church could stand on the power of God as they considered uh, their own salvation but in chapter number 6, he gives us a list of the people who are recipients of that good news of God, doesn't he? He says, we know uh, that the sexually immoral or the idolaters or the adulterers or men who practice homosexualities or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We know that, we, we understand that, and we hope, because heaven would be kind of less of heaven if it was filled with these kind of practicing people. It was filled with this kind of violence and ungodliness. But Paul goes a step further and, and helps us see that these kind of people were the very ones that were recipients of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because he says to them, and reminder, which were some of you? 
Now, I know for us, we understand that theologically and uh, that the gospel is not just a reward for those who do good, but it is a good reminder for us. And I think God wants us to see that because we see in chapter 3 the good Nicodemus, who's the theologian and have everything going right in life. And so naturally God would come to him and Christ would be eating with him and having a good time, you know, trying to, to, to see how things are going. And yet the gospel says we find Jesus not only with Nicodemus, who is in desperate need of being born again, but here with a woman who is in desperate need of God's redemptive touch as well. Christ speaking to her. The gospel is an offer to those people who don't have it together. To those who have sinned. Those who cannot help themselves. It is a gift to the unrighteous. That's good news for us this morning because there's not a person in this room, not a person in our lives that does not fall into that category. Would you agree with that? We are all in need, all of us. And part of that gift of the gospel is having eyes to see Jesus for who he is and to see our need of his saving hand. And you see that in our example with this woman beginning of verse 15. Now, last week we began this by considering Jesus' intentional ministry and his genuineness. He comes to this woman. He speaks to her as if there was no problems between Jews and Samaritans. He, he uh, uh, basically ignores generations of stigmatism, hatred, and uh, abuse between Jews and Samaritans and simply, in, in one statement by simply asking her for a drink of water. Then turning to her, not only asking for a drink of water, but reaching out to her, offering her this gift of eternal life. And we left off at verse number 15, and she's like, give me the water so I don't have to come to this place and endure what I've been enduring all this time. <clears throat> so I want to look, beginning in verse number 16, and I'll give you a few headers if it's helpful for you if you write notes. Uh, as God is working in the life of this woman, as Christ is bringing her the good news, he is confronting her. He's confronting her. And then we could use the word he exposes her. He, he, he's revealing to her not only himself and who he is through this process, but in that revelation of God and the good news, there is that exposure, that revelation of ourselves. As we walk in the light, we not only see the source of that light, which is Jesus Christ, but it shows us everything else around. As we've seen earlier in John chapter number 3, light has come into the world. And that light has that revealing effect, exposing this woman, exposing us. And it's a good reminder for us this morning that no one sneaks into the kingdom of God unnoticed. And there's no side door no one enters into the kingdom of God unknown. God is well acquainted where we are in life. In one way, we should say that Jesus is meeting her where she is as he meets us where we are in our sin and in our mess and in our, our mess. That's a good word. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Anna helps me sometimes. I didn't. should give you a heads up, Shannon. So he meets us where we are. But we should not be mistaken. He is not misguided or naive to the things going on in your life. 
He's not naive to what's going on in this woman's life. To, to the woman, Jesus was a stranger by all natural rights of things. Uh, the woman was a stranger to Jesus, never having met her physically before as we, come, as we see this encounter going on here. And yet, she is no stranger to him. While he may be a foreigner and while he may be, may be a mystery to her, she is no mystery to him. Neither are you. Nor am I. And God knows everything that's ever gone on in our life. Everything that we've done. Isn't that a sobering thought? The dark places in our mind. The actions of your past. The things that you've gone through. Both the things that you've done. And the things that's been done to you. God is well acquainted with. You're very familiar with the old or the psalm, and I know it's rather foolishly even bringing this up because it's elementary to many of you who've been raised up in church and and you have come to understand and know the theology or the understanding of God being everywhere and he knows all things, he never learns anything, uh, and we're always exposed before God. We're called to mind Psalms 139 where the psalmist is just meditating on this fact and he says, Lord, you have searched me and known me You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my past, my lying down, and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is in my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Isn't that a remarkable thought? That Christ, as he is offering her living water, as he is speaking to her, as he is offering her salvation and the gift of God, he is offering it to someone he is well acquainted of, or well acquainted with. He knows her, is well aware of the hurt and shame, the guilt and the brokenness that is in this woman. And he is actually putting his finger on it with this question in verse number 16, isn't he? Go and call your husband and come here. Now, on the outset of that, we might say, well, that's just a simple question. Go get your husband. Come, and I'll tell you more about living water and all this stuff we've been talking about. And yet what we find out in the narrative, Jesus is bringing out and and unveiling for her the source of her shame, the source of her sin, the source of her suffering. He's exposing her. Notice he says, verse number 16, go call your husband. The woman answered him, I have no husband. I'm trying to... Get the question off for her. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband for you. have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. Uh, Commentators are very interesting when they try to explain this for us. They try to give us some, this is talking about the five deviations of Samaritan religion and Judaism. and, And so that's what he's talking about. I think it's simply just what it is, what it's written for us here. The woman, whatever reason in the culture, whether it's divorce or death or adultery, whatever brought about the situation, the place where she's at, Jesus is saying, I understand exactly where you are and what's going on in your life. He does not avoid her sin. In fact, what we find often, even in our own lives, as you come to James, when he speaks about that perfect, that mirror, that perfect law of liberty, It has that effect of revealing for us who we are and where we are. God's word has that that effect of, of bringing harm with it, in some ways bringing pain with it. 
And she didn't want to talk about the issue. She, she kind of derails the conversation. Then she goes into theology. We'll talk about that in a moment maybe. But, and she's going all over the place. Let's just get off the subject to me. And yet Jesus speaking to her because what is going on is this offer the gift of God. And, and he is wanting her to understand her need for it. The pain that he's causing her or the, the uncomfortableness of the situation or the, the, the hurt is to heal her, not to hurt in itself. That's a good reminder because sometimes we can wield the Bible as a sword to bash people and cut them down. There's a time for us to stand firm and to be strong and, and to say things that need to be said, especially if you read the Old Testament prophets. They did not back down. John the Baptist did not back down. There's a time for that and there's a need for that. But all of that is to bring to repentance those who have sinned. In fact, one of the great gifts God gives to us in the gospel is the work of the Holy Spirit. And in one place we're told that that work is that sin might become what? Exceedingly sinful. Not that we might make a mountain out of a molehill, so to speak, but that we might come to see how great and how heavy and how of a devastating and deadly thing sin is. Not just sin in general, but the sin in our own lives. It is the work of God to open our eyes so that we might see not only the situation we're in, the way it is necessary, but that we might see Christ as, as the cure and the help of that pain in that situation. Well, the Proverbs reminds us that our help is not found in hiding our sin, but in coming to the one who can cover them. You might be, recall Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Whoever conceals his transgression will not proffer, prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now, the woman didn't outright lie to Jesus when he says, bring your husband. But she did try to distract him. And yet here Jesus is, knowing that she had been married five times and knowing she's... Uh, to, uh, living with a man who is not her husband, whether it's somebody else's husband or, or whatever the case is, uh, we don't know. But, um, but he knows all this, and yet he is still offering her the gospel. He's still offering her everlasting life. He's still offering her hope. Isn't that remarkable? Why don't you turn with me to Romans chapter number 5. Fully knowing her, fully knowing the mess of life and the that she is in, he offers to her forgiveness, continuing to seek to save her. And this is a very familiar passage of scripture, but I could not help but think about it. And because I, I don't think we're amazed at it in our own life as much as we ought to be, let alone in the lives of others. Romans 5, beginning in verse number 6, he says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. That's simply saying that you would probably die for your family. You would probably die for your grandkids or your children. You might die for your country or your friend or your, your parents or whatever. 
He's saying that's, that's natural. We had to understand that. People die for good people, for good causes. But that's not what it says here. That's not how he describes why Christ died, is it? He goes on and says, but God shows his love, and that, that's the idea of declares it, demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You might die for a good person or a good man or for a cause or for your family, but you wouldn't die for a woman that's been married five times and is living with somebody. Would you? You wouldn't die for people that are on that list in 1 Corinthians 6. You wouldn't die for the people in the jail. And yet, what the Bible is saying that Christ's offer of grace, it confronts us in our sin. It reminds us that, that despite all of this, Christ died for us while we were still sinning, while we were ungodly. Knowing from the outset of who you are and where you were, that Christ still willingly, because of the love of the Father, died for us. Isn't that remarkable? I have a thing called a memory sometimes. It, it works and sometimes it doesn't work so well. I have a lot of people who are older than me that reminds me that it only gets better as age goes. That's encouragement right there. By better, I mean worse. I think you get that. And there's many times, even in my own past, I think of things, events, situations, statements, sins that I've found in my own past that upsetting, unsettling, just it's a terrible reminder. And yet even in that, knowing all of that, not only knowing where I was and what I did, knowing what I would do even after redeeming me, and yet what we find Christ still going through with dying on the cross to give us forgiveness of sin. And that is a remarkable thing. The exposure of our sin isn't the end in itself, but it is to find forgiveness and restoration through Jesus Christ. He doesn't berate her. He's not beating her down. In fact, he, he kind of commends her. You, you told the truth twice. He says, you told the truth. You said this, and that's true. It's not all the truth, but you did tell the truth. He doesn't berate her. He's not demeaning her. But he's not avoiding it because he is the solution to her shame. Because in him and what he's come to do is he's the resolution or, or he's the one who has come to fix and to help and to heal her. I think you see that in Colossians very clearly in chapter number 2 and verse number 13. He reminds us that he exposes us to heal us, shows us our sin to forgive us. And you who are dead in your trespasses and sin and circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all of our trespasses by concealing the record of death that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And the Bible tells us many, there are many, or reveals to us there are many responses to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, to the exposure to sin, sometimes Men and women respond in pride, don't they? Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. It may be bad, but I'm not as bad. So they just kind of go headlong in their own way and don't see their need. 
Others respond to the sin in their life and the exposure of their need and with indifference. But just ignore it and forget about it. It's in the past. Nothing I can do about it. You just kind of go on about life. Some deal with it with indifference and, and indignation. As the Bible reveals that all have sinned and come in short of the glory of God, the response is, is anger at the message of the cross and the gospel and Christianity. And yet there are some, like those who heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost, who said, sirs, what must I do? Maybe this is really the reason why she brought up worship. What can I do? Well, we'll look at worship at another time. I want us to notice first that the gospel confronts us. It confronts us to heal us, but it also changes us. Notice with me down in verse number 23 and following. What she brings up, trying to distract Jesus and go off to worship. The hour is coming. Jesus responds to her. It's not about a place. The hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father. Spirit and truth, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And if you just stop there, you kind of wonder how the conversation went, don't you? I mean, if, it, if the narrative, John, just kind of went on to the next guy and the next story, you kind of wonder how things went. Now, there's much that is not said about the woman. We don't know what happened. You can ask her in heaven when you get there what happened with the guy she was living with and how all that worked out. I, I mean, you can work those things out later on. The Bible doesn't tell us uh, exactly the, the, all the details it worked out, but it does give us a kind of indication that this woman is no longer the same having encountered Christ. God doesn't just reveal us and, and save us to leave us. He meets us where we are, but, but he comes to meet us, to change us, to deliver us from where we're at. It's not just to expose sin and say, it's all right, I don't care about that. But it's to expose, to deliver us from the power and the, and the consequence of sin. Notice verse 28 with me. <clears throat> He says, so the woman left her water jar and went away towards the town and said to, said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? After a sermon this past week, <clears throat> the preacher said that Christianity's, uh, the worst advertisement for Christianity, if I can get this stated right, is Christians. There may be some truth to that. There may be something to that. But I would say, likewise, the greatest testimony, the greatest advertisement for Christianity is the power of God at work in the life of a believer, is a Christian. We read that long list in 1 Corinthians and all the immorality and, and all the, uh, the sin that's listed there. And there's many more. Paul's not being exhaustive there. And he says, which were some of you? And he refers to them as being washed and cleansed and being saints now. We're seated together with Christ. So here we see that great transformation taking place. I just want to note a few things here about the woman and her change. And as we see just glimpses of it, the first of which is notice the way she left in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away in the town and said to the 
people, come and see a man. She left with haste. She didn't grab her stuff and just take her time going back. She wasn't saying, I'm just going to think about this and I'm going to work it out. And, and, and that's kind of interesting conversation. She leaves her stuff there and she quickly goes and tells. Something transformed. You see this kind of dread of coming out there so much so. She, she says, give me water so I don't have to come to this place. There's all sort of baggage and, and things around her and what's going on there. And yet, yet here at the response of meeting Christ, at the, at the word of him being the Messiah, she leaves with enthusiasm and excitement leaving her stuff behind. The second thing we notice in this, I think it's worth noting, is the townspeople which she sought to avoid at noon are the very ones she's seeking out. Well, it's the hottest part of the day. The women normally come in groups at different times of the day. They don't come in the middle of the heat. She's coming by herself, maybe because the well is the town gossip mill. It's like, I was going to say, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but you get the point. And yet the very people she sought to avoid is the very people she's seeking out. There is some news that is worth sharing. There, there's sometimes events that happen in life that is just worth, you just got to tell somebody else. I think that's the way it is with salvation, isn't it? Isn't that the way it is when you come to Christ uh, and you find that your sins are forgiven, that, uh, that you have been redeemed and brought into the family of God. You've been loved in all the things that he gives to us and, and just the natural outflow of that. Those she sought to avoid, now she's seeking out. Third thing you notice, she doesn't know much about Jesus. She's not filling out and she's not teaching a class on Christology. Verse 29, she just simply goes, seeks out the people in town and says, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? There's something just beautiful in the simplicity of that. How complicated do we make the gospel at times? Even sharing your faith or, or pointing someone to Christ or, or just telling them about Jesus or what God's done to you, we, we tend to complicate things. So many caveats and so many things in there. And here this woman doesn't know. She doesn't know she has to do all that stuff. And so she just simply naively just goes and tells all she knows and that simply a man has told me everything I've ever done. And the very thing that was the source of her the source of her shame, the thing that she wanted to avoid, the thing that, that hurt her was part of her past and life and present is the very thing she uses to draw people to Christ, reminding us how often God brings life out of death and beauty out of ashes. This is a great reminder that where sin abounds, church, grace does what? Much, much more abounds. And you see it in the life of this woman. You see it in the life of everyone in here that's ever put their faith and trust in Christ. At the depths at the bottom in our rebellion against God and our, and our disobedience to him and our sinful lifestyles and the choices and the depths of that we could not possibly, we could not incur enough to overcome the grace of God. It is so much greater than we could fathom. 
It is so much greater than what we've done wrong, how he works and moves and gives us life. And I'm just telling you, it's, it's, it's a beautiful reminder because we live in a broken world that's filled with suffering, filled with sin. And you know, sometimes as Christians, we look at all that, not just as, as in general in society, we look at that in people's life and we, we think there is no hope, don't we? And yet, where sin abounds, grace does much, much more abound. God does not leave us as he founds us, but he changes us. We're not perfect. That would be nice, but we're not. Little by little, we are being changed, conformed to the image of Christ. So the gospel confronts us, it changes us. And the last thing I'd like to mention in this section here is the gospel charges us. There's a compelling work to the gospel. You see it in the woman's life. She doesn't need anybody to tell her to go tell somebody. There's just that experience. She's encountered Jesus as the Messiah. There's something significant going on here. And because of all that she's experienced in this moment, she is compelled inwardly to go tell her people. She is compelled inwardly to go share what God has done and who he is and who she's found. It's the most natural thing for her to go. And I think it should be with us as well. As we come to embrace who Jesus is, this is that season of remembering that. It should, it should stir our hearts. It should be a natural response to God's grace to go and tell and share it with others. Second Kings gives a story of four leopards. Chapter number 7 who went out of the camp of Israel. They're starving to death. The Assyrians surrounded the city. People are, uh, people are starving to death. They're going to cannibalism. So the lepers decided, let's just go to the Assyrians. Maybe we can get some food, and, and maybe we can live. We'll be slaves or in dungeons, but at least we won't starve to death. And so they go out to the Syrians and they go into the tent and instead of surrendering, they find food and drink and, and stuff and no people. You could only imagine starving what you would do. You would gorge yourself. You're, you're sitting there trying to take in everything you got in case somebody sneaks in or comes in and stops you. They run off. They come back and they find some more stuff in another tent and they go and bury it and they come back and it, it comes to this realization that Assyria is gone and all their stuff is here. And I love what is said about that. It's such a vivid picture, I think. Verse number 9 of chapter 7 says this, And they said one to another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning Light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come and let us go tell the king's household. There is something right about having received such grace and goodness of going and spreading that good news to others. In some ways, this woman simply found God's grace and wanted her people to hear it and know it as well. But he does another thing here. There's the compelling which is inward, but there's also the compelling which is from the outside as Jesus is teaching his disciples. Notice with me back in John 4. The disciples are wondering what's going on. They're mostly clueless. 
We are too, aren't we? Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him to eat. Verse 32, he's wanting them to know that I have food to eat that you don't know anything about, you do not know about. And so the disciples said one to another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. And here he begins to challenge them and to teach them. One, the will of God is fulfilling. We see that in Jesus' own statement here. But the second, he says in verse number 35, and here is a group that are walking to Galilee. Jesus is going to Galilee to minister there, to to continue on his ministry. And maybe in the disciples' mind, when we get there, we'll do ministry and we'll continue on in ministry. And, And so Jesus kind of lifts their mind up and saying, ministry is not a destination. It's wherever you are and however God works through you. Notice verse number 35. Don't say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Look up and open your eyes and see wherever you're at, the people that's around you. See the annoying person that's at the drive-thru. It's a person created in the image of God. The people that you encounter day in, day out. You go to your family's reunion. It is a time. We're going to see my family in a week or so. It's a time of, of enjoyment, getting together. But it's also an opportunity to, to share the love of Christ. Jesus looking at his disciples, you, you think that everything is ahead of you and preparing for it. It's, it's in the midst of you right now. Look around and see all these people who are coming and hearing and believing. So there's a fulfillment in doing the Father's will, and that's still true for us as a church. It's just, there's a fulfillment in, in serving God and, and, and serving our Lord and Savior. And there's also a reminder for us to look around and see the fields of where we're at. But thirdly, he says, verse number 36, Already the one who reaps receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. And there's something in this that he is reminding them that he has sowed the seed. And they share in his work. They, they share in his ministry as they come to reap the harvest. And you know that that's exactly what we still do today. That as we go out as the church, as we minister, as we share the gospel in whatever ways we share it, we are entering in to work with Christ. Now, some plants, some water, and, and, and there's different aspects in what we do, but it is God who gives the increase. We, he doesn't call us to a, a futile task of doing the best you can and maybe things will get done. No, he blesses, he enters in to work with us in spreading the kingdom of God and, and saving and drawing sinners to himself. The disciples will enter into the work with Jesus as he sends them out and they'll come again and have a great revival among Samaria, uh, Samaria and the Samaritans. But fourthly, not only is there fulfillment doing the will of God, not only is there a harvest around us, not only do we enter into this work with God and with Christ, but we also enter into it with one another. You sow and I reap, I sow and you reap. It is us being actively doing what God allows us to do in the moment we're in. We serve together. 
And the last thing I want to mention is with this great conclusion. Notice with me verse number 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So that when Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his words. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have seen and heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That is the glorious fruit of the gospel at work, isn't it? Many believing, coming to that confession that he is the Savior of the world. Well, that is one of the things that we celebrate this time of year, Savior entering into the world. Hopefully as we go about our lives, we are continually reminded he didn't just come into the world, but he is the Savior of the world. So let us go and share and tell. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning as we've gathered together. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy and how you offer us forgiveness and healing, how you transform our lives, change us one degree by another. Lord, how you call us and put not only the desire within our heart, but the reminder in your word to continually to be a part of what you're doing in the world, going and telling and sharing. Help us to be busy with that this Christmas season. Lord, we'll give you the glory for everything. In Jesus' name, amen.